Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at Cato. I uh, appreciate everyone coming out today for our forum on the assassin's veto. To begin with a few administrative matters, if you've come here before, you may well know all of this. We're going to have a forum here where my colleagues, uh, uh, Professor Ross and Mr. Corn Revere, will present on, on our issue, the assassin's veto, uh, Mr. Corn Revere's paper. Uh, then we will have a period of question and answers, and around about 1.30, we will go to lunch upstairs to have the famous Cato After Forum lunch. I'll have more on that later, but for now, let me begin with our formal part of the forum. Just over one year ago, in fact, one year ago to this day, 17 people were killed over a three-day period by terrorists in France. Killings that began at the Paris offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo. The killers, as you may recall, asked by name for editors and writers at Charlie Hebdo before killing them. The BBC notes witnesses said they heard the gunman shouting afterwards, quote, we have avenged the prophet Mohammed, unquote, and, quote, God is great, unquote, in Arabic while calling out the names of the journalist. The Charlie Hebdo killers, it is hard to avoid the conclusion, were responding to free speech, the free speech of the Charlie Hebdo employees, with bullets rather than with more speech. Hence, the term of our forum today, the assassin's veto. And yet, almost as if the Cato Institute arranged it, but we did not, of course, the Washington Post today reports that in Germany, quote, Prosecutors are launching investigations into inflammatory comments about immigrants as judges dole out fines, even probation time, to the worst offenders. German authorities, meanwhile, have reached a deal with Facebook, Google, and Twitter to get tougher on offensive content, with the outlets agreeing to apply domestic laws rather than their own corporate policies to reviews of posts, unquote. That is, not only... In contrast to the United States, are we seeing a European kind of law that is more willing to make trade-offs against freedom of speech? But even what in the United States would be private forums are being drawn under uh, public regulation, regulation of speech that is taken to be extreme, offensive, or threatening to the community in general. Europe and the United States clearly have different views on what is called extreme speech. Cato published a book on this topic in 2014, The Tyranny of Silence by Fleming Rose. That book praises the libertarian approach of the United States, an approach that weighs free speech more heavily than other values. On the anniversary of Charlie Hebdo, we have asked our guest today, Robert Corn Revere, to present his recent paper on this very topic, the topic of the assassin's veto, the, the question of European and U.S. Uh, approaches to free speech. And Catherine Ross, a professor at George Washington, who is also a First Amendment specialist, has generously agreed to comment. The question, should the United States follow, US, uh, follow Europe in restricting spe free speech for other values? Let's turn first to our main speaker today, uh, Bob Corn Revere. 
Bob is a partner at the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP, where he specializes in First Amendment, Internet, and communications law. He has extensive experience in First Amendment law and communications, media, and information technology law. He has been the lead counsel in many important cases. He regularly counsels clients and serves as litigation counsel in First Amendment communications and Internet-related matters. He also speaks and writes extensively on First Amendment and communication policy issues, acting as a public voice or intellectual as well as a litigator on these matters. He is generally considered a leading defender of the First Amendment in the Washington arena, and I would also say that we at uh, Cato are proud to have him as an adjunct scholar. Bob, uh, as an aside, also successfully petitioned Governor George E. Pataki, yes, the presidential candidate, uh, to grant the first posthumous pardon in New York City to the late comedian Lenny Bruce in a landmark pro bono case. Bob, we await your instructions. Thanks, John. And thanks to the Cato Institute for uh, setting up this forum and for inviting Catherine and me to talk about it. Uh, on the sad occasion of the one-year anniversary of the killings at the offices of Charlie Hebdo and, and more generally in Paris, um, I do come with PowerPoint because if ever there were a topic that begged for visual imagery, this is, this is one of them. Um, and the title of it, The Assassin's Veto, is one that has come into currency in the past year. I wish I could claim credit for it because it is so apt. Uh, but I think the first usage that I've come across was by uh, James Toronto of the Wall Street Journal, uh, who uh, used the term assassin's veto, and then it got picked up uh, very widely after that. It is, of course, a uh, takeoff on the heckler's veto, which is an established concept in First Amendment law and something that came into currency during the civil rights era that uh, um, first used by Professor Harry Calvin at the University of Chicago talking about the notion that people who dislike speech in a community, people who come in who um, advocate for civil rights, for example, uh, would argue, and public authorities would argue, that to prevent unrest, to prevent disruption, those people who are making the noise uh, and, and objecting to speech should overpower those who are wanting to speak. So the hecklers get their way and can silence speech in that way. Uh, it has become more deadly and more serious in the past uh, year uh, with uh, the advent of terrorism and the heckler's veto becoming the assassin's veto. Uh, and so uh, we see uh, various examples of that. We're talking about Charlie Hebdo today, but it didn't start with that, of course, and it, it, these aren't the only examples of it. Um, it. It was almost eclipsed by the news that came out of Paris a year ago, but just in the month before that, there had been the threats by North Korea to disrupt and violently disrupt the opening of the movie, The Interview. Uh, not a great movie, but uh, you know, nonetheless, uh, it was a, a satirical account of a supposed assassination plot against Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Um, and so as a result, uh, the premiere did not occur in the vast majority of theaters. It later was released on DVD. And then within a month, that was sort of forgotten, because in that instance, we had the actual violence of Charlie Hebdo, where uh, you had uh, the attack on the offices and a dozen people killed, including uh, a, uh, a policeman outside the offices. 
Now, when that happened, of course, it galvanized public attention on this issue and on the issue of free expression generally. And at first, there was the thought that this may actually lead to some unified notion of uh, how important free expression is and how world leaders would rally behind that cause. You had the march in Paris where you had some 40 uh, world leaders uh, converge on Paris. You had 2 million people uh, in the streets, 4 million across France, and demonstrations, similar demonstrations in other countries, including the United States, all in solidarity and in protest of this barbarous act of killing people because of their speech. Uh, but of course, um, that wasn't the entire story. Uh, you, know, you had world leaders rallying in favor of free speech who didn't protect freedom of speech in their own countries. And so uh, that wasn't lost on some of the political cartoonists. Matter of fact, I think some of the strongest voices uh, in promoting free expression and in pointing out some of the uh, ironies were the, uh, the political cartoonists themselves who felt the, the loss so, so deeply. Um, you know, the, the, in, in those circles, there was no ambiguity about whether or not what was done was unmitigated evil. And I think they did a good job of, of pointing that out, uh, some more trenchantly than others. And then, of course, there was the iconic cover of Charlie Hebdo in the week after the, uh, the shooting. And by the way, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, this is a cover because it also has an image of Mohammed that some people objected to. I was talking to someone yesterday who said that she was involved in a free expression forum on a college campus and had a university professor approach her and say, I don't even want to see that. It is so offensive. And that's something that we'll get to uh, in a little bit as well in some of the reactions to what is uh, going on. Um, of course, there wasn't uniform um, condemnation of uh, the events at Charlie Hebdo. Uh, there were demonstrations uh, in, in various countries. And, and by the way, uh, there were a number of, of uh, Muslim countries that did give statements of support uh, for Charlie Hebdo and, and say that uh, denounce the, the acts. But there were also these demonstrations around the country, uh, around the world. Um, uh, saying that uh, what happened was justified, and including the, an op-ed piece in USA Today by Anjum Chowdhury, a uh, UK-based uh, cleric, who said that uh, you know Muslims don't believe in freedom of expression. He wasn't alone in that, uh, and he asked why did France allow uh, the tabloid to provoke Muslims. Um, and a, an Australian cleric similarly said, if you want to enjoy unlimited freedom of speech, you need to expect others to exercise freedom of action. But those kinds of reactions weren't confined to just people in the Muslim world, people who you think would object to the images of Muhammad. It was also a uh, sentiment that was expressed by many uh, in the United States, including people who you would think should know better. Professors of journalism, for example, saying that uh, Charlie Hebdo crossed the line that separates free speech from toxic talk. Uh, another one, a professor at uh, Arizona State University. I used to be a free speech absolutist, but Charlie uh, Hebdo changed that. Um, Zbigniew Brzezinski on Morning Joe saying that uh, those who printed the images should not have uh, engaged in such provocative behavior. And of course, the Pope, you cannot make fun of the faith of others. Of course, I thought that's the only way to deal with the faith of others, but that's 
maybe perhaps just me. Anyway, uh, uh, these were the reactions. But probably the most ironic one came from Gary Trudeau, the creator of Doonesbury, who, in accepting the George Polk uh, Career Award for Journalism last year, uh, condemned Charlie Hebdo as an abuse of satire, saying that it was punching down and saying that uh, free speech absolutists were wrong for defending uh, this satirical magazine. Uh, I think really mainly that just demonstrates that Gary Trudeau was really uh, not qualified to accept an award for journalism, but uh, nonetheless, that was his reaction to it. And that brings me to ask the question a year after these events, what is the state of free expression in a world in which we have the assassin's veto? Uh, and and what, do we, what sources do we turn to to determine whether or not free expression is still healthy when people really have to face serious threats if they uh, offend someone in a deep way? And so I'll look to three different aspects to answer that question. One is the rule of law. The second is the courage of our convictions. And finally, the spirit of liberty. Now, the rule of law in the United States is sound. We have the First Amendment, and that sets us apart from every other nation. Um, it is a commitment, uh, a constitutional, uh, basic uh, commitment of our constitutional law that the government cannot interfere with free speech or freedom of press, freedom of conscience, when you include the religion clause. Um, now, what all of those terms mean is something that we work out case by case. But nonetheless, that is the basic charter of our political life. Um, and it has been interpreted over the years to mean that there is a right to engage in offensive speech and that there is no right not to be offended and that our politics doesn't work without that basic understanding. Uh, and those are cases that had to be decided case by case, looking at some very painful situations and to determine what does, how far does uh, freedom, of freedom of speech extend. Uh, one of the early cases uh, really set the limits between free speech and incitement, Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969, where you had news coverage of a Ku Klux Klan rally. And in that instance, the court drew the line for incitement, saying that before something can cross the line from free speech to incitement that can be restricted, that you have to have an intent to cause an immediate breach of the peace and proof that it is likely to cause that immediate breach of the peace. Short of that, the fact that someone may be offended isn't enough to uh, determine that that, that that speech can be regulated. This is tested uh, in some other very difficult situations. I think probably the ACLU's finest hour in defending members of a neo-Nazi uh, group to march in Skokie, Illinois in the late 1970s. Again, a few examples put the, our belief in the principles of free, uh, free expression to the test more starkly than something like this, where you have these people marching in these uniforms in a community that is largely Jewish and made up of many Holocaust survivors. Uh, it, again, is, is hard to imagine, but our belief in the principles was then reaffirmed in that case. And then more recently, of course, we have the Westboro Baptist Church, which is a small group of um, religious cultists, really, who believe that all of the ills of, of America, all of the ills of the world, are due to the fact that we are too tolerant of homosexuality. And their means of, of dealing with that uh, is to protest in various places, usually at military funerals, but other venues as well, and uh, say very hateful things. Uh, 
Um, this is a case that went to the Supreme Court in 2011 on a, on a question of whether or not the church members could be held liable under the theory of intentional infliction of emotional distress. And the court held that, no, the First Amendment prohibits that, that you need something more than simply to say that the speech is hurtful and outrageous, uh, that instead uh, the First Amendment places limits there. But it also said that the best response to um, hate speech is more speech, which is, again, a basic principle in First Amendment law, that if you think something is absolutely abhorrent, the way to deal with that is to get out into the marketplace of ideas and express yourself as well. And by the way, people have not hesitated to do that with the Westboro Baptist Church. You, um, <laughs> I, I think the counter speech in these examples uh, probably speaks more loudly. And it also underscores the principle that in the marketplace of ideas, the function of some people is simply to serve as a bad example. Uh, so, uh, and this is my favorite, of course. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but even if you didn't have the counter speech, it's important to keep in mind that the marketplace of ideas is a process. So people will put out ideas, good ideas or bad ideas or abhorrent ideas, and people can make their own decisions whether or not that is a good idea. But in addition to that, you have other participants in the marketplace of ideas that contribute to that. So again, it is a process. But even if you didn't have the counter speech, can you imagine anyone looking at this nonsense that these people put out there and saying, huh, maybe they have an idea. You know, the fact that as a nation we tolerate the likes of the Westboro Baptist Church to spew this nonsense, uh, you know, hasn't slowed down a move toward tolerance in this country. It didn't slow down the movement toward marriage equality. Uh, and yet, you know, we, we do permit that kind of ridiculous speech. So, <laughs> probably the best, actually, this, this is my favorite. Uh, Fred Phelps died last year, the, the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church. And uh, a number of people raised the question, what, do you think, what kind of protest do you think will occur outside his funeral? And my initial response was to think, well, none, because probably everybody approves. But uh, this was the, what a number of people uh, held up outside the funeral of Fred Phelps, which I think is absolutely the perfect response under the First Amendment. We see this true in art as well, uh, the notion that uh, art can be blasphemous or, or offensive. Uh, these two examples are Andre Serrano's Piss Christ, which was uh, in part of the uh, controversies over the National Endowment of the Arts in the 1990s. The other one is the work of the Holy Virgin Mary, which was the subject of a case involving the Brooklyn Museum, um, a number also in the, the, in the late 90s, um, where um, people were trying to uh, remove those exhibits uh, Mayor Giuliani uh, threatened to uh, cancel the lease of the Brooklyn Museum. And again, those kinds of things uh, recur from time to time. But again, I think the best way to deal with the notion of blasphemy in art is, again, through more speech. Book of Mormon, if any of you have seen it, uh, you, you get the notion that some might consider that uh, work of art to be blasphemous. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's, it's really funny. Um, but the Mormon church didn't you know, threaten picket outside theaters or, or threaten violence or anything like that. The way the Mormon church dealt with it was to buy full-page ads in the playbills saying, you've seen the play, now read the book. Uh, and, and there were other ads as well, similar, similarly themed, that said, you've seen the play, the book is better. 
<laughs> so, you know, I think that was the way in a free society you deal with that kind of speech, and especially if you consider it to be offensive speech. Europe treats these things quite differently, uh, as uh, John mentioned, um, uh, and you see news of that all the time. Uh, and each country will have its own statutes that deal with various kinds of speech. The French hate speech law is probably the oldest. It goes back to 1881. But all of that is governed by the European Convention on Human Rights as well, which treats these issues quite differently from the way that we do in the United States. Now, Article 10, if you just read the first clause of it, is just fine. It just says everyone has the right to freedom of expression, including the freedom to hold opinions and receive and impart information and ideas without interference by public authority, regardless of frontiers. OK, so far, so good. But it goes on to say, in Clause 2, it may be conditioned or restricted as prescribed by particular national laws when such limits are, quote, necessary in a democratic society in the interest of national security, territorial integrity, or public safety, for the prevention of disorder or crime, for the protection of health or morals, for the protection of the reputation or rights of others, or preventing the disclosure of information received in confidence or for maintaining the authority and impartiality of the judiciary. Quite a few exception clauses there. Um, the one that is used to justify hate speech laws is the one that except for reputation of the rights uh, of others. Uh, that is also reflected in Article 17 of the European Convention. It basically says notwithstanding the uh, Article 10 guarantee, uh, you also do not prevent, permit an abuse of free expression. So uh, this is how you define whether or not something is what we call in the United States protected speech. If it's an abuse, it falls outside the range of Article 10. And if it does fall within the range of free expression with Article 10, then it has to be balanced against those other values that are in the separate clause of Article 10. So as a result, the protections for free expression in Europe are really quite different from what they are here, which explains the mixed reactions in France even after the Charlie Hebdo killing. Now, as I say, the French may not have invented irony, but they have perfected it. Uh, this is a country that has hate speech laws but bans burqas. So, again, a country that is not, um, not immune from irony. Um, right after the week of the, uh, the Charlie Hebdo um, killings, the French Justice Ministry sent a letter to prosecutors saying that they needed to have aggressive tactics to crack down on racist and anti-Semitic speech, the very kind of speech that many claimed that Charlie Hebdo specialized in. Uh, within that week, nearly 60 people were arrested for hate speech crimes, including the comedian Duodien, who is um, known for being anti-Semitic, but also he had posted in his Facebook post, I feel like Charlie Kolebali, who was uh, the um, supermarket the, the person who had taken over the, the supermarket in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo shootings as well. Uh, because of that, he was seen as promoting terrorism or condoning terrorism and was uh, prosecuted for that. And I believe in the news recently was convicted. Um, just in this morning's Washington Post, as John mentioned, uh, there is the notion of the article coming out of Germany, where in the wake of violence over the New Year's uh, uh, celebration, particularly in Cologne, Germany, uh, but generally, since the uh, waves of immigration have uh, uh, been coming into Europe um, from the Middle East, uh, you have more and more people posting things on social media that are intolerant of immigrants. Um, and as a result, Germany has been cracking down using its hate speech laws 
and that's what uh, this article is talking about as well. But that has picked up steam since, um, since the New Year's. Now, all of that arises because of the differences between European law and U.S. law. And these are the, the ones that I've mainly in looking at the various cases detected. First, in the United States, we protect uh, all speech as a presumptive uh, right under the First Amendment, but there are limited categories of unprotected speech, like incitement that I mentioned before, uh, like obscenity, uh, uh, like uh, uh, th threats, things like that. Um, so again, the, the exceptions are limited and in efforts by state legislatures in Congress recently to expand the categories of unprotected speech, the court has drawn a strict line and said we're not going to expand those limits. Uh, as I mentioned from the European Convention on Human Rights, in Europe they have more open-ended categories of speech. Anything that is said to conflict with the European values of the, of the EU uh, can be excluded from the protection of Article 10. Um, secondly, when we do regulate speech in the United States, it is subject to strict scrutiny, which means that um, um, it is the government's burden to prove that the restriction it wants to impose is justified by a compelling interest and that the government has used the least restrictive means of regulating speech. In Europe, by contrast, they have a, a concept called proportionality, which means you weigh these various interests. The one in Clause 2 of Article 10, for example, you weigh those values against the uh, free speech values. Third, in the United States, the presumption is that speech will be protected and that speech needs breathing space to, to, to survive. That is, in, when you have a benefit of the doubt, you protect speech rather than protect, protecting the government efforts to restrict it. In Europe, you have instead what is called a margin of appreciation. And that is when the uh, European Court of Human Rights looks at a government measure, they give the benefit of the doubt to whether or not the government really needs to adopt this policy. And again, it's another different way of balancing. And finally, in the United States, speech intermediaries are protected. Now, there are constitutional principles that do that. We also have Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that does it as well. But basically says, when you post information by third parties, we're not going to hold you responsible. And that's to basically generate an open marketplace of ideas online. In Europe, more recently, there have been decisions saying that people who do post third parties' comments are responsible for those comments. And so again, a much different approach. And so as a result, so let me uh, get to this in a second. As a result, you have examples of where um, politicians in Europe have been saying things much like what you're hearing American politicians say this election cycle who have been the subject of prosecution in Europe um, for saying things as simple as, um, uh, one person was convicted of aggravated hostility toward a religious group for displaying a poster supplied by the British National Party that depicted the World Trade Center in flames with the caption, Islam out of Britain, protect the British people. That was uh, a successful prosecution. Uh, similarly, in 2009, uh, Daniel Ferrey, a member of uh, Belgium's parliament, was banned from a holy public office for 10 years because he had said, stand up against Islamification of Belgium, stop the sham integration policy, and send non-European job seekers home. Those are the kinds of things that can be successfully prosecuted in Europe. Now, whether or not any of those uh, ideas are repellent, and I think a lot of them are, 
the issue is whether or not it is within the bounds of freedom of expression to express those ideas. And as I said, if you applied the same standard to the American election cycle this year, you would see certain candidates doing time. And as tantalizing an idea as that may seem, it is still antithetical <laughs> to the principles that we stand for under the Constitution. Um, now, as I mentioned, we, we are still, uh, we, we, protections for free expression are, are strong under the First Amendment. Uh, that hasn't changed, but we are seeing some changes in how certain people approach it. Academics, there's been quite a lot of academic writing uh, in the last few years, and Catherine can probably speak to that as well, um, more, and, uh, more deeply than I can, uh, questioning whether or not we should have as strong a protection for free expression. But we also see some movement among some of our judges, and here we see uh, Justice Breyer suggesting a theory of proportionality. Uh, he uh, released, or at least drew the link to this in his book just released this past year, The Court and the World, where he says that he's drawn on this notion of proportionality that you see in the European decisions on free expression. And this is something even before he published the book I'd noticed in certain of his opinions. Uh, for example, in the United States versus Alvarez, which is a uh, decision uh, in which the Supreme Court struck down the Stolen Valor Act which prohibited, as a matter of law, people from lying about having military honors. The court overwhelmingly struck that down, but, uh, and, and Justice Breyer joined the opinion, but wrote separately to say that he instead would not apply strict scrutiny to a, a principle like this. Instead, he would apply proportionality, and uh, the court should simply weigh the values of the speech involved against the, uh, the interest in restricting it. In some other cases, he has dissented and applied the same principle, which is sort of striking because you really can't tell Justice Breyer's concurrences from his dissents because he pretty much always says the same thing, and that is we should balance whether or not the speech should be upheld. In this case, Sorrell versus IMS Health, again, he applied proportionality and said that he would have upheld a state restriction on the ability of people to market uh, pharmaceutical products. Now, the law is sound, but again, uh, we, we do have to keep tabs on it because of the, uh, the uh, actually the ongoing debate, both in, in the academy and in the courts, about what standards should apply. But more importantly than just uh, whether or not the law as it currently stands is strong, we also have to determine whether or not free speech will survive because of the, the courage of our convictions. Uh, Justice Lee Brandeis uh, wrote about this even as, as far back as 1927 in Whitney versus California, saying that uh, liberty is the secret of happiness and courage is the secret of liberty. Um, and it does take courage to stand up to these kinds of threats to free expression. Uh, this is true not just when you were talking about things like the hecklers we were during the civil rights era, or if you were protesting in Ferguson, Missouri for Black Lives Matter or any of these confrontations where you have the clash between authority and freedom of speech. But in a more deadly world, it becomes uh, much more high stakes. How have we uh, stood up to this? Well, just taking the issue here, uh, look at the number of publications that have refused to publish the images of Mohammed in the wake of the killings last year. Uh, just the cover that I showed a little while ago from Charlie Hebdo, uh, in the issue that came out after the killings. So many American news organizations did not show that cover because they were afraid. And, um, you know, if, if that is the overwhelming reaction, then the terrorists have, have achieved their objective. They have cowed us into not 
exercising our First Amendment rights. And in that case, it really doesn't matter what the law says if people are unwilling to exercise their First Amendment rights. By contrast, Charlie Hebdo has not been slowed down. This is today's cover, the anniversary cover after one year, basically saying the assassin is still at large. Uh, in other words, religion is still at large, which of course prompted the um, reaction from the Vatican, this is blasphemous. Uh, and uh, so, and by the way, possibly prosecutable under European hate speech laws and under European uh, blasphemy laws. Just this last October, the Polish Supreme Court upheld their blasphemy law because a rock singer said that she thought the people who wrote the Bible were drunk on wine or had been smoking herbs or something, and she believed in dinosaurs more than she believed the Bible. The court upheld a 1,200 uh, euro fine for making a statement like that. So uh, this kind of cover does require courage in Europe. Uh, we can do it here, but uh, again, um, free speech doesn't exist without that kind of courage. And then finally, the spirit of liberty. And that's the third component that is absolutely essential for the survival of freedom, freedom of expression. I think uh, Judge Learned Hand put this so well in a, an essay that he wrote at the height of World War II when um, <laughs> the future of the world was by no means assured. Um, but he wrote that liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and if it dies there, no constitution, no court, no law can save it. And uh, he goes on, the spirit of liberty is what's essential to uh, the survival of this precious right. Um, and so how do we fare on that today? For that, let me just turn to where things uh, are currently at play on our college campuses. Uh, in many ways, um, you know, this is where the birth of the free speech movement was. This is Berkeley in 1964, uh, and this was sort of the beginning of a whole series of changes. Uh, students protesting about uh, racial justice, about, uh, about the war in Vietnam, about any host of issues, about relations between men and women, about control of uh, women's bodies, all kinds of issues. Before that, uh, it was seen to be at least overtly unseemly to bring those matters onto campus. And so the struggles of the 1960s and 1970s led to the case law that ultimately protects those rights. But again, if the case law protects the rights, but people aren't interested in exercising themselves, uh, then free speech dies. And what we're seeing on college campuses now is, I, I think, very troubling for the spirit of liberty. Um, on one level, you have administrators imposing speech codes and the like, and I spend uh, quite a bit of my career attacking those kinds of restrictions on free speech on college campuses. Um, but what of the students? Do the students believe in freedom of expression? And there, I think that there are some troubling trends. These are two factoids that appeared in an essay that uh, Greg Lukianoff, the president of FIRE, uh, just published for Cahill, and I think they are really quite troubling. First is an October 2015 study from Yale that found that 51% of college students support speech codes and 72% would support restrictions for any student or faculty member who uses language considered to be racist, sexist, homophobic, or otherwise offensive. Think of that. Otherwise offensive. That can uh, get you penalized according to the sentiments of a majority of the students in that survey. Likewise, a November 2015 Pew Research Center study said that 40% of millennials, those people aged 18 to 34, say that the government should be able to punish speech that is offensive to minority groups. 
Now again, this is not an argument in favor of offensive speech. It is an argument against having the government being able to restrict what kind of speech is out there, because ultimately, if you do that, freedom dies. But more importantly, what do people believe? Do they support free speech or not? Nothing really expresses that, I think, more tragically than what we saw uh, recently with uh, some of the examples on campus at the University of Missouri, for example, having students in an area excluding physically a photographer from that area, or the confrontation at Yale where you have uh, the uh, young woman who is shrieking, this is not about creating an intellectual space, which is evidently a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess, in her case. Um, and so for the future of free expression, this is, I think, the biggest thing that we have to work on. Uh, a year after Charlie Hebdo, when you seemingly had the world coming together in favor of free expression, our biggest challenge in the United States isn't dealing with the laws. It's dealing with whether or not people really do support freedom of expression on the very issues that led to the killings uh, in Paris, and what, whether or not we have the courage to see that through. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Uh, our commentator today, as I mentioned, will be Catherine J. Ross, who specializes in constitutional law with a particular emphasis on the First Amendment, family law, and legal and policy issues concerning children. Her new book, Lessons in Censorship, How Sco uh, Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights, has just appeared with Harvard University Press. Concurring Opinions has said that it is, quote, the best book on the First Amendment in 2015. So you'll want to be on the lookout for that book. And also, I hope you'll join us again in late February when we have a book forum from uh, Professor Ross's uh, Lessons in Censorship. Uh, she's also been the co-author of Contemporary Family Law, which is now in its fourth edition. She's currently a visiting scholar at the Harvard School of Education an elected fellow of the American Bar Foundation. Uh, Professor Ross is former chair of the ABA Steering Committee on Unmet Legal Needs of Children, former chair of the Section on Law and Communitarianism of the Association of American Law Schools, and has served on a wide variety of ABA committees. Uh, she serves on the editorial board of Family Courts Review and is a formal editorial board member of the Family Law Quarterly. She has degrees including a PhD and a JD from Yale University. Professor Ross, Ross, welcome to the Cato Institute. Okay, first, I just want to say what an honor it is for me to be responding to Bob, because I regard him not only as one of the leading practitioners of law, um, a, a legal practice designed and motivated by protecting uh, free speech rights, but also among the practitioners, one of the wisest and most productive commentators on First Amendment theory. And so it's really a pleasure to be asked to respond to this paper. Uh, I'm going to start with something that isn't in his draft article, but that Bob closed with, which is relating this whole controversy to what is going on on American campuses. And um, my deepest concern, uh, like Bob's, is not so much that the laws in the U.S. will change or that the courts will cave in to pressure to limit free speech, but that we are failing to inculcate the values of free speech and an understanding of the purposes and the importance of the First Amendment in our young people. 
as reflected in the survey results. I'm not going to comment um, here on the university controversy because I will actually be re responding in Cato Unbound next week to Greg Lukianoff's comments. But if you want to talk about that during the questions, I'm happy uh, to do so. But to me, if I see a wavering, it is in popular opinion and the pressure that brings on legislators, many of whom actually know better, but are counting on the courts to rescue them from their illegalities. Uh, if the American people don't understand free speech, they will not be supportive of it, and that is always dangerous and troublesome. They will also not know how to exercise it responsibly. Uh, but now let me turn to the paper. And one of the things that um, I found very interesting about the paper is um, the way in which it deals with an abundance of cross-cultural conflicts. Um, the obvious one is the conflict between what we might call the Western world's approach to rationality uh, the United States, after all, the founders were men who were enamored of Enlightenment philosophy. They believed in analysis and reason and bringing that to bear on social problems and the problems of governing. Um, on the other side, uh, let's start with the Islamic radicals who are obviously going to be our focus on this anniversary of the Charlie Hebdo massacre. Uh, they believe in received wisdom. And there is no room, as some of the quotes that Bob shared indicate, uh, for people bringing their own interpretations or their own readings or their own rationality to bear on the fundamental rules that govern life and society. Now, this is not limited to Muslims, and let me stop here for a minute and say we also have to distinguish among branches of Islam, including many branches, as we're very aware right now and at this point in history, uh, that want to kill each other, as well as wanting to kill Westerners or Jews. Um, and it's not only Islamic fundamentalists, as we saw just recently in the United States, Christian fundamentalists who shoot up an abortion clinic. Now, you might not think that that's about speech, but it's based on conduct that flows from a disagreement about ideas. The abortion clinic existed because, one, the Supreme Court said women have a right to obtain abortions, but also because the people working there believed that that right was important and that the service should be available. And they did so knowing that their lives were at risk because other abortion providers had also been assassinated. Assassinated, the assassin's veto. One way to end abortion, some religious fundamentalists in this country believe, is to make it so frightening that no doctors will offer the service. And they have also been very powerful because in the majority of counties in the US today, women cannot get an abortion without traveling. And many medical schools have stopped teaching how to do the procedure. That is a most pervasive kind of First Amendment chill. It's not just about uh, conduct, it's about ideas. Um, and we also have in Bangladesh, 
the murder of secular bloggers in large numbers and others who've been forced to leave and to go into hiding in Europe. So these are private assassins of expression. And in general, the law in the United States and the law in Europe have really been focused on what the government can't do. The First Amendment, Congress shall make no law, subsequently understood to apply to every level of government and every government actor. This is a new kind of threat. This is a threat that the First Amendment doesn't exactly reach until it crosses over into conduct. Because the heckler's veto tells the police and other government actors what they are supposed to do. They're supposed to protect the speaker and quiet the mob. They are not supposed to whisk the speaker away to safety. But the Constitution says nothing about the right of a speaker to be protected from the speaker's non-governmental peers. Um, and so this is something that we have to think about, think about how to integrate this problem into our general understanding of the First Amendment and its jurisprudence. So Bob is absolutely right that the problem is more complicated than do we believe in free speech or do we believe in comfort? And I think what's going on on the campuses is a very good example of that problem, especially where those who want to silence expression are coming from the standpoint of another value that we hold high, such as equality, racial equality in this sense. And so do we say that speech always trumps equality? And if we do, then we have to explain why. I personally do think so for reasons um, that I'll turn to. So imagine if the court was willing to say that the First Amendment excludes insulting speech or inflammatory speech or hurtful speech. Well, first of all, almost all of the iconic Supreme Court cases that set out the doctrine of free speech, which really the court only began to grapple with after World War I. It's a rather um, new area of our jurisprudence compared to some. Um, then we would have to define what's insulting, and we'd also have to figure out whose perspective we were going to use. Would it be the speaker's intention to insult? Intent is always very hard to pin down. Um, or would it be the reaction of the person who is insulted? And if so, would that be the particular most sensitive listener? Or would it be a rational and reasonable listener? Well, almost by definition, these people who are insulted by speech, like the picture of the prophet, are in our terms neither rational nor reasonable because they are coming from a totally different place. And it can be almost impossible to have a conversation. So if it's subjective, some groups will get a lot more protection than others. The religious, because they believe in divine truth, will almost always be more offended because they will have more grounds for saying, you are attacking my entire worldview. If somebody tells me, oh, you're going to hell, no skin off my back, because I don't believe in hell. And if I did believe in it a little bit, um, I wouldn't believe in it in such a fundamental way that I would take that threat seriously. 
Um, so the whole idea that freedom of expression doesn't extend to insulting Allah is an important example to use, but I just want to keep saying it's not the only example. So um, an organization, of, an international organization of um, Islamic groups has been asking the United Nations to put in um, an international rule against insulting religion. And they want this in large part because of illustrations of Allah. So to show you the difficulty here, exactly a year ago, uh, I was beginning my uh, course on the uh, Bill of Rights, uh, which focuses very largely on the First Amendment. And we had just finished talking about why the speech clause is understood to protect deeply offensive speech. Both the form of the speech, like in Cone's jacket, F the draft, although in class I say the whole thing because it's important, um, or um, insults or, or the ideas behind um, the expression. And last year I had three really smart foreign students. They were all practicing attorneys from other countries, two from India and one from Iran. And all three of them said that they had come to the United States to do graduate work because they want to become human rights lawyers. Wonderful. So the day of Charlie Hebdo, I come into class and I say, you know, we're just going to have to spend the day talking about this because it fits right where we were last week about offensive ideas. And we had a great discussion. And these three international students were completely lost. They couldn't get from the cases we had just read to the proposition that the cartoonists and the Danish cartoonists earlier had a right to do this. And they kept saying, but didn't un they understand how hurt people would be? And no matter how often we went through the, the fundamental principles, they kind of couldn't grasp it. So after class, I asked them to talk further with me, and they said, well, they should just refrain from doing it even if they have a right. And I said, but that's chill. Uh, from a, a public perspective, I said, if my child asked me, would you like me to draw these cartoons and take them to school, I'd probably say it's not such a great idea. You might hurt your classmates. But he's not a political satirist. He's also now a grown-up. I was imagining him younger in this hypothetical. Um, so they said, well, that's just too aggressive. And I said, OK, well, what kind of cartoon would be OK? What if they did a cartoon that was pretty gentle about the prophet? And they said, it wouldn't be funny. I said, well, you see, you've just hit the nail on the head. So should they only do unfunny cartoons? And would it solve the problem if they did that? And they said, well, of course not, because it's offensive to draw a picture of the prophet. So that really meant they were saying, you have to accept the religion's view of what is offensive, even if there's no um, civility component to it. Whatever someone thinks will offend them is off limits. So this shows the slippery slope of even trying to voluntarily comply in the way that the Pope 
would like to see people do. Um, so, um, another issue that Bob does not grapple with is numbers. We have had an easy time here in the United States because in general, our most heinous speech has not attracted a lot of adherence. And one of the reasons that Europe has a very different legal regime, both in terms of the fundamental principles they subscribe to in government documents, in the way they translate those principles into criminal statutes, and the way they prosecute and judicially review such offenses, is the immediate history of the 20th century in Europe and their deep understanding, um, which is the basis of Jeremy Waldron's argument that we should ban hate speech here, but of course he's British and a political philosopher, not a lawyer, um, that ideas have consequences. And sometimes the consequences are ugly. We don't have to wait for the consequences. Well, that could be hate speech. That could also be the ideas that lead to assassination of speakers. That's also speech that has consequences. Those consequences violate laws. We can intercept them at some point. And one of the questions is when does speech become incitement or criminal conspiracy to break a law by engaging in violence? And I think that's probably the point where we can stop some of this speech, but not at its most incipient form. And of course, that's a huge problem with groups like ISIS, which are apparently beginning with relatively harmless speech or very harmless speech. Oh, you're alienated in European society or in Western society. Come and talk with me. I understand your pain. And it's only at some point down the road that they are turning to, would you like to do jihad? And that's even too early to stop in our tradition. But legislators and presidential candidates on both sides of the aisle, I must add, would like to see limits on internet speech that could go down that road. That's too speculative. But going back to the numbers issue, so now imagine that suddenly the noxious speech becomes the speech the majority loves. And we're beginning to see some little hints of that during this campaign season. Do we then have the principles to say we still believe in the right to speak? And of course, this is one of those very delicate things. Where is the tipping point? Because you always have to test your commitment to free speech as if the power is on the other side. And that's why the civil rights analogy that Bob used and that I like to use um, is so critical. Because when you think of the southern states at the beginning of the civil rights movement, and they tried to silence speech and assembly and demonstrations in every way they could with the full coercive power of the state and with physical force, and with bombings and assassinations, not by necessarily state agents, but sometimes state agents were part of private groups that were doing this silencing. And so you have to think about that um, when you think about the current campus controversies. The shoe could be on the other foot. And someone could say only racist speech is acceptable. 
So whatever it is you find most heinous, that's the way to test um, your commitment. But, but can we be sure the truth will prevail? Was that a naive idea? Uh, and I think that is really what we're coming up against and that is so troubling. And I have to say, I don't have an easy answer for it or even a, a difficult answer for it yet. But it's something we have to think about. So Jefferson said it to those who are too concerned about um, you know, whether the First Amendment gives too much speech rights. He said, well, the law stands ready to punish the first criminal act produced by false reasoning. So there, there again, an assumption that in the marketplace of ideas, there is truth and falsehood. And the law stands ready. So that's part of where I get my idea that there may be some point before the outbreak of violence, if one has evidence that we could consider intervening, very different from saying we should cut off all the speech. What about the idea that speech, some speech is just too offensive? Well, we all know it's powerful. That's why we protect it, because it may lead to something. But both. Um, Judge Posner and Justice Alito, when he sat on the Third Circuit, said very clearly, there is no legal right to be protected from harassment or from offensive ideas. That's at the heart of the First Amendment. You have a right as a listener to hear ideas you want to hear. If you don't like the ideas, you are supposed to, in traditional parlance, walk away, throw the mail in the trash, cover your ears. Maybe it's a little bit more bombarding now, but if it's on the internet, you don't have to go there. You don't have to go to the site. You don't have to turn on your computer. The responsibility is on the listener to avoid the speech that the listener hates. Um, proportionality, I just want to say briefly, um, it's not so different from some balancing that First Amendment theorists used to agree was appropriate in the US. Used to. Used to in the 60s and into the 70s. Not so much anymore, but it's not, uh, it's never been expressly repudiated. Um, and one can see it in some of the sort of balancing that goes on when a court asks, um, was the regulation on speech done in the narrowest way possible? We have to ask what's narrow enough, what's possible, how much important speech was silenced. But I agree with you, it's a different approach in its statements, and most importantly, who gets the benefit of the doubt. Um, so two other uh, thoughts, if I'm not running too long. John, am I OK? OK. Um, so. We have also not done a good job of controlling even the heckler's veto in the US. And we see that more and more, not just on university campuses, but in the public schools. I'll give you just one very dramatic example. It involved um, a young white guy in a high school in East Hampton, Long Island. Some of you may have visited that area. The school. Uh, which is local year-round residence, is mostly Hispanic immigrants. And a young man who was Hispanic died in a motorcycle accident. And one student said something very rude. And another, this young man, whispered to his friend in the corridor, you won't believe what so-and-so said. 
this person said one down, you know, X hundred thousand to go. And he was overheard. He didn't intend to be. And people thought that that was his view. And the police had to whisk him out of the school to safety. And his life was threatened. And they called his home. They drove by his home. They visited him at his workplace. And the school suspended him for the rest of the academic year on the ground that it could not keep him safe. Heckler's veto, working amazingly. No one at the school thought they ought to talk to the students who were threatening him or punish or suspend the students who were threatening him. He asked for the opportunity, and this is how it became a speech case, he asked to be able to explain himself to his peers, either at an assembly or by circulating a letter or making an announcement over the PA system. And they said, no, you'll just inflame people even more. So what lesson did people learn at that school? That if you find speech offensive, if you make a fuss and you make threats, not far from threats to assassins, you will silence the speech. It will go away. That is creating an atmosphere that does not augur well for our free speech traditions and our traditions of civil exchange. Civil exchange. What is civil? What is incivil? Joan Scott wrote a great article um, that appeared in, I think, The Nation last spring, but she gave an address to the AAUP in which she talked about freedom of speech and civility and insults, not only hearkening back to Berkeley, um, but also talking about who controls our ideas of civility. Ideas of civility are controlled by those who are in power now. The First Amendment is about the rights of dissidents, the cantankerous, the potentially revolutionary. That's why we have it. Jefferson also said every age ought to have a revolution. He thought dissidents were great. We no longer really think that. Um, so we have to understand that when we ask you to be polite, we're also giving a whole bunch of other messages about the social order and who controls it and how much variation we are willing to tolerate. And this brings us to the last really difficult problem that we don't yet have an answer to, uh, which is the role of these privately administered ways of communicating like Twitter and Google and Facebook that are being asked to censor and that are to some extent agreeing voluntarily to limit speech so that they won't be forced to by law. And we need to think about the distinction we've always made between private censors, okay under the First Amendment, and the state censoring or are these platforms something different? And they may be because they were created really with government infrastructure and funding and development. And maybe we need to say for First Amendment purposes, this is really the town commons and the main street and the park and Hyde Corner, which were always seen as places that were set aside for freedom of speech. But that's something that many of us have a great deal of work to do on um, as we move forward. Thanks so much. Well, the question of a private forum here, which I think <laughs> we are, in fact, in right now. Um,
brings us to question and answers. Uh, and we do ask, uh, and I don't know that the federal government could do this or state governments, but we do ask that you wait until you're called on for a question. Um, wait for the microphone, um, in part because so everyone online can also hear your question. We ask that your name and affiliation be communicated also, but there's a anonymity thing if you want to remain anonymous here. Um, the censorship issue is please make it in the form of a question for a while. There's a certain amount of speech or fine that we will tolerate to tell you, tell you the truth, but please don't do that. We're short on time and we want to stimulate conversation here. So uh, let's begin right here and then we'll... Uh, wonderful presentations. It's often said that the European practice is a result of the triumph of totalitarianism in major countries, but didn't Weimar Germany have hate speech laws and which were turned out to be absolutely powerless in preventing the rise to power of the Nazi party? And in your paper, there, you can only cover so much, but there was a weird Supreme Court case, which I will refer to as Bong Hits for Jesus, although I'm sure it has a more <laughs> formal name. And didn't that really run in, it fly in the face of even a minimal protection of free speech? Uh, yeah, you're referring to the case Morse versus Frederick, which is a student speech case and an area of the First Amendment law that is uh, a little bit difficult because you're dealing with people who are minors in those cases and under the supervision of state-operated schools. So the Supreme Court has held that the students don't lose their rights at the schoolhouse gate, but then the decisions since that time have navigated the difficult terrain of how much protection to provide at the elementary and secondary level. Now, once you get to university, then uh, full First Amendment rights apply, uh, or close to full First Amendment rights. Um, but Morse versus Frederick was one where uh, the court decided it based on the notion of a person having this sign, Bong Hits for Jesus, at what it interpreted was a school-sponsored event. There can be some dispute about that and whether or not uh, uh, the school is within its rights to restrict what was interpreted to be speech promoting drug use. Now, frankly, nobody knows what he meant by bong hits for Jesus. He didn't even know what he meant by it, which is one of the reasons why I think he lost the case. But uh, the court was willing to, at least Justice Alito, who uh, wrote separately in the decision, was willing to say, had there been any political content to the speech, I would have protected it. I would have voted to protect it. Um, I just want to say one thing about the Weimar laws. Uh, having laws on the books, we all know, is never sufficient. The laws were not only ignored, they were re really repudiated by the government's actions. But connected to that, um, there's a really good article in Foreign Affairs yesterday uh, on this issue that points out that uh, despite all the hate speech laws in Europe, anti-Semitism has been rising dramatically. So even if you, in fact, enforce those laws, that just means people may stay in their living rooms and say the same things or use coded words um, or even just break the laws and not be prosecuted. So we, even if the point is that hate speech laws aren't necessarily effective in killing the noxious doctrine. 
Yeah, that's I'm glad Catherine brought up that point because I, I wanted to say something about that as well. The, the presence of hate speech laws has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to have discrimination or hate or whatever, and most often are used by those in power to restrict whatever group they disfavor. And f for an example of that, you have to look no further than, uh, than Russia at present, where the uh, group Pussy Riot, who did the demonstration in a church, and by the way, best band name ever, uh, but uh, they did a demonstration uh, doing punk prayer in a church. They were prosecuted for hooliganism uh, based on religious, to incite religious hatred. In fact, what they were doing was protesting Vladimir Putin, and that's why they were prosecuted. So you can use those kinds of laws to restrict speech whenever you consider the speech to be offensive, but to achieve your ultimate political ends. The Cato book I mentioned, The Tyranny of Silence, makes the point that uh, National Socialist editors and journalists were in fact fined under hate speech laws uh, in, the, in the 1930s. So yeah, that's correct. Gentleman over here. Hi, uh, Pat Spann, just uh, myself. Um, Professor Ross uh, hit on something that I, within the last week, I uh, uh, was reading about uh, HB 569, it was just introduced, my uh, illustrious Congressman uh, Beyer is one of the co-sponsors, and it mimics the uh, UN thing about making uh, anti-Islamic comments, uh, hate, you know, a, a crime or hate speech. And I read it, and i just sort of appalled that um, this has now been entered. It's like, say, it's HB 569, and it's... Um, been entered into our Congress mimicking the this UN uh, protection of uh, of saying negative things about Islam, and I wonder if you guys were familiar with that. It just I think it's just I actually I just have read not it. seen that. Thank you. I just I just uh, you know read about it, and it's online, and the, the actual document. It's you know the, all the whereases and all that, and it's just it talks about speech, and and it's just amazing to me that you know that we've reached that point in our country that. Um, our own Congress is willing to mimic the, um, the UN. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Uh, but thank you for bringing that up. But as I indicated, you know, legislators often uh, sponsor and vote for bills that they know violate the Constitution, and they just count on the courts to bail them out because they don't want to have to explain to their constituents um, that something the constituents want is illegal. It's hard to say I'm standing up for the underdog. Yeah, we've even had presidents who said, I think this law is, is unconstitutional, but I'm signing it, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, gentleman in front, colleague. Hi, Swami Ayer from the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm just trying to understand the freedom of speech, if in a campus somebody stops you from saying what you want to stop, do they have a right to do that? In other words, can you say you're entitled to free speech but not necessarily in this place? Uh, in other words, can every school and every college or the Cato Institute <laughs> institute certain rules barring free speech and would that be entirely okay if you have the right to speak somewhere outside? The second question I really have to ask is on the question of hurting religions. I am an atheist. If I take the position that every single religion is therefore an insult to me and my beliefs, would I be able to ask for the, a ban on the Bible, on the Quran, and on every other piece of religious literature? Well, well let me take your second uh, question first, because I'm an atheist as well. And 
you know, it, it strikes me as deeply offensive that I have to worry about the future safety and security of both myself and the world based on this ancient dispute over who has the best imaginary friend. And so, uh, but hate speech laws say that not only can I not raise that question, but I have to be polite about it. And so that I find deeply disturbing. Whether or not we could, as atheists, justify restricting what other people believe, of course not, because there is enshrined in the First Amendment as well freedom of conscience, and it's both freedom of religion and freedom from religion. Uh, so that, uh, yeah, uh, everyone should be f- feel free to follow whatever convictions they believe, whatever higher power they, they uh, want to believe in. Uh, but again, uh, whether or not those beliefs can restrict freedom of expression is something else. And that's something that Catherine said. I mean, I want to make clear that the comments that I had weren't trying to single out Islam. That was simply a starting point because that was tied to the Charlie Hebdo killings. But the issue in censorship goes to certainty, goes to the notion that someone believes that they have a a market, uh, uh, they can corner the market on truth so that they can dictate what other people can say and how they can say it. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote that certainty is the hallmark of the censor. And uh, that bit that I read earlier from Learned Hand, um, talking about the spirit of liberty, it goes on to say, the spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure that it is right. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which weighs their interests alongside of its own without bias. Uh, and, And so the evil in censorship is this overriding belief that you are right, but that often coincides with religious views, religious fundamentalism, believes that no one else can possibly be right. And that's why that issue comes up in in these conversations. On the issue of campus speech, it would depend in terms of a legal answer to your question, whether or not you're talking about a public university or a private university. If it's a public university, then it's governed by the First Amendment, which uh, restricts the ability of, of state entities to control speech in the area. Now, there are some limits because you have the university created for a certain purpose, so you can't have people with bullhorns out during exam week disrupting people's ability to study. But apart from that, universities are generally considered to be public forums where students can exercise their rights. That was the whole point of the free speech movement with the slide that I showed from Berkeley. Um, And to give you an example of how far we have come away from that principle, a, a number of campuses have what are called free speech zones, which are tiny restricted areas of campus where free speech is permitted. Now, you know, call me crazy, but growing up in America, I always thought the free speech zone went from the Atlantic to the Pacific and the Canadian border to to the Gulf of Mexico. But nonetheless, uh, schools have tried to confine free speech to certain areas, and that's one of the areas that we've been litigating quite a bit on behalf of FIRE. One of the cases involved a student who was wanting to pass out copies of the Constitution on Constitution Day uh, a couple of years ago and was uh, stopped by campus security saying, excuse me, you're outside the free speech zone. And when the student tried to explain to him, well, no, this, this is the Constitution, and I have a right to do this, he was escorted over to an administrative building where they were telling him when he could sign up, maybe next week, maybe in a couple of weeks, for this tiny little pad out on the edge of campus where he could you know, try and talk about the Constitution. Um, we sued the university, or the, the community college in that case, and uh, they uh, quickly saw the error of their ways and, and, and settled. But 
when you're talking about pub, uh, public universities, you have that option under the First Amendment. Private universities can set their own rules. Uh, gentleman in the middle there. Uh, yes, uh, I'm Russell King. Uh, following up on this private versus public universities, um, uh, a, few, a few years ago, uh, uh, Sigma Alpha Epsilon had had an incident, I think it was the University of Oklahoma, public university, but it was offensive against blacks, you know, racially, but I don't think there was any kind of violence, anything like that involved with it, and, and they tried to take action against Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity nationally, and... Um, I, I, I had asked in, in my own college, uh, the black group, um, about um, whether or not that this was justified or not, and they, they said some sort of community consensus, which I, I believe might be what you're talking about at private institutions, but was it right what, what they did uh, in response to that Sigma Alpha Epsilon group, the, the if this, is, if this is the, uh, the the case I'm remembering, it did, actually didn't turn into a case, but it was one where a bunch of stupid frat boys were singing a racist song on their bus, and um, within a couple of days, the uh, president acted by uh, expelling the students involved. Um, the question is whether or not that was uh, a permissible thing to do. Now, first of all, part of the problem of, of defending uh, free speech cases quite often is that you find yourself uh, defending people who say really repellent things. And uh, when it comes to campus speech, that often means defending stupid frat boys. Um, but uh, in this instance, uh, that never, as I say, that never did become a case. Uh, but the question is whether or not the university president was within his power to expel someone without notice, without a hearing, simply because they saw something that looked bad and also because the speech was offensive. It was unquestionably offensive. Uh, and so all of those things raise, I think, significant issues under both the Due Process Clause uh, of the 14th Amendment and under the First Amendment. Um, and, you know, whether or not that is something that could have led to punishment, you know, you can, you can debate that. But I, I think definitely there was a strong both First Amendment component and 14th Amendment component to that situation. I just want to add uh, two quick things to that. Um, one is this is a great example of where the solution for bad speech is more speech. The yeah. university president can speak, can call a community meeting, can say every house on campus has to have a meeting and talk about the kind of community that we are and why we disapprove of this speech. You may have a right to say it. Exactly. That doesn't mean you must say it or that you should say it. Okay, so we can bring in social disapproval. We can present other values. These are, after all, still young people. Can the national fraternity organization punish this group? This, this chapter? Absolutely. They are a private group, and they can set the standards. If you want to franchise and use our fraternity name, we don't accept this, and I would encourage them to impose sanctions. Other questions? Anyone? Down in front here. Um, Michael Savage is the, I think, the number two talk radio host in the country and certainly definitely popular in this area here and uh, he has been banned from entering the UK uh, Donald Trump apparently there's a petition in process right now to ban him from entering the UK 
uh, Barack Obama and others on his side are, let us say, quite willing to say disputing global warming is something that maybe ought to be punished and pretty much anything about Israel. So uh, my question, I think, so mostly to Professor Ross, it seems to me the, the, uh, the wedge that started all this thing, that, that started that in, in a civil society like this country that seems to justify these kind of uh, insertions into the public debate is child porn because the mere possession of the smell of a hint of it somewhere adjacent to your computer would justify having, you know, a SWAT team plus you know, air rifles and probably a drone coming against you? I have to say that um, child porn is a very special constitutional category and commonly misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, in a very important case, Ferber, uh, several decades ago, the court said the reason that we can ban child pornography is because it uses children uh, to produce it. And so there we are not so much limiting speech as protecting actual minors who could never consent to being involved in this production. Um, and, and so they interpreted the bans on child pornography as being the only effective way to stop the exploitation of real children. Uh, so uh, you may be right that some people think that opened the door to going after other forms of offensive speech. Uh, we could also argue whether denying global warming is as offensive as child pornography, um, but I, I don't think that's a straight line. I, I actually thought your question was going somewhere slightly different, um, because when the UK decides not to let someone in who would be violating their laws if they said the same thing in the UK, that might strike us as a little bit preposterous. Well, Shouldn't the jurisdiction be, if you come here, you understand you cannot voice those things here, or we will arrest you or evict you. But in fact, the US has a long tradition of not admitting foreigners who want to say things we don't like, even though our own citizens and residents have a right to say them, most not notably in the old days, communists. Yeah. Other questions? One more question. Uh, right there, thanks. Hi, Liz McDougall from Backpage.com. Um, Mr. Cornrevere referred to um, the heckler's veto uh, as applied to intermediaries. And I wondered if there, if you have any views on what is the answer to, uh, from Microsoft, Facebook, et cetera, uh, to the heckler's veto? How do they, how should they address it? It is a really good question and a really complicated one um, because, and it, get, it touches on the point that uh, Professor Ross ended with talking about how do you treat these private entities that are the new town square um, and maintain principles of free expression. And I think there's no getting around the fact that these private entities have rights of their own. 
right? They, they have the right to have editorial policies. They have the right to include certain things on their platforms or exclude others. And it's one of the reasons that the law does protect intermediaries, recognizing that right, but also recognizing the importance of intermediaries in promoting uh, the, the ability of, of people to use the internet as a, global, as a global medium. And so I think the real danger with intermediaries is when they become deputized by government entities to uh, adopt various public policies that those governments uh, prefer. You see that happening a lot uh, in other parts of the world, and you see it happening to a certain extent in the United States, where you'll have um, sort of a hidden censorship, a behind-the-scenes censorship, uh, where you have uh, governments leaning on private businesses to adopt policies that they would never be able to enact as law. Um, one more, quickly. Uh, maybe we should just wait for the microphone so we can all hear. And then, sorry. I think I, I read today, I forget the school, it was a professor in Florida who has just been fired for, um, I guess, blogging, denying uh, such things as the Newton massacre. And the, the, just the notion who, who talked about wanting to criminalize uh, climate denial, I guess. They, I mean, so... You get a situation where, in some sense, our laws come from our society. Um, and at the same time, um, you want to maintain a distinction between what is socially perhaps impermissible and what is legally impermissible. So I, I wonder how you begin to even try to maneuver that gap. Because it seems to me you know, obvious that Amongst certain societies, uh, somebody could be ostracized and shunned for saying, uh, I, I, I really don't think we have the evidence on global warming in. Um, but you want to maintain that ability to express that view as a matter of law. Well, yeah, of course. And right. Well, the, the situation that you started your question with, this professor who was fired at Florida Atlantic University, I read about that in, in the Post this morning, so that's really all that I know about it. But um, evidently, based on the story, uh, he was not just maintaining crackpot conspiracy theories like Sandy Hook was a hoax, uh, but uh, he was contacting the families of victims, sending them registered mail, pestering them, and had been warned about outside activities beyond his scholarship uh, by the, the college before then this latest incident where he was in direct contact with the family. And, you know, I, I don't know anything about what policies were applying, but it was more than just, based on the story, just the fact that he had been expressing outrageous views. In terms of your broader question about... Um, being able to express views that are against the mainstream and are, are fringe views, um, or even mainstream views that are not accepted by a majority. Um, there, I think the law has absolutely no role, and it doesn't depend uh, on whether or not there's a scientific consensus or anything like that. If there, people are going to question climate science, they should do that. Make it part of the, the discussion at large and, and let people have it out. And the same is true, by the way, in Holocaust denial, which is illegal in, in Europe, and again, again, based on their history and all of that, uh, you know, but, but again, 
uh, the answer to that is is more speech and and better ideas. And just to um, follow up on the point that Professor Ross made about Jeremy Waldron and his book, The Harm and Hate Speech, he says that speech has serious consequences, it can be hurtful, and we need to stop bad ideas before they become bad consequences. Well, yeah, speech is serious. It can be hurtful. Justice Roberts made that point clear in Snyder versus Phelps when he talked about how it does have serious consequences, and that's why we protect it. Um, in terms of whether or not it might lead to bad consequences, we've seen what happens when the country decides it knows what political system, what it should look like, and how it should prevail, and has adopted laws to restrict that. And that's why we had the Red Scare, that's why we had, why we had the Army McCarthy hearings, and that's why we had loyalty oaths and all kinds of things that have been discarded, or at least I thought had been discarded until I saw the Republican campaign this year. Uh, and so, it is a very dangerous idea, no matter how benign the motives, to bring law into deciding what is true and what convictions we should hold. It is well, it's our obligation to combat that. And, and you know, if, if we're worried about people learning the wrong things, then we need to recognize that and respond to it in a rational way and ultimately um, believe that uh, reason will prevail. And I can't help but note that that will be one of the topics discussed during uh, Professor Ross's book forum in the last week of February, sometime after February 20th. So if you want to hear more about that, please keep your eye on the Cato site or you'll get an email and uh, come back because I think we've had a very good forum today. Right now I would like to uh, mention a couple things about lunch, which is next. Uh, the lunch is held on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. You would go down to the spiral staircase and go upstairs. The restrooms are on the second floor on your way to, to the uh, lunch. Look for the yellow wall. They're uh, right there as you go by. Um, thanks to everyone for coming. Thanks for our speakers today. I think it's been a really great uh, uh, forum. And please join me in thanking them. <laughs> <laughs>